Australian seafood is world-renowned. Who can resist a plate of fresh prawns or rock lobsters? A co-op in the country's west has been involved in fishing since the 1950s. Hello, I'm Melina Morrison, CEO of the Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals, and welcome to our regular podcast, where we take a look at cooperatives in regional Australia at a time when there's renewed interest in such enterprises. Michael Kavanagh wasn't able to take to the water, but he caught up with Geraldton Fisherman Cooperative CEO, Matt Rutter, who has his hands on the tiller coordinating around 20 facilities that spread over a thousand kilometres. Melina, the co-op, like many, started with a handful of those directly involved in primary production. In this case, some men with trawlers. Now it's grown to be the biggest exporter of rock lobsters in the world. Over the decades, as Matt Rutter explained, the co-op, which is 100% owned by those who take to the sea, has been able to shift with the changing tastes of mainly overseas palates. Yeah, there's quite a broad economy up in Geraldton these days. So it's part of the Midwest region of Western Australia. Um, one of the biggest agricultural exports out of there by far is grain. So CBH, another great cooperative, um, has one of their four major grain terminals out of out of Geraldton. Um, and they export everything from wheat, barley, canola um, and other grains out of there. And it's a huge production area, very, um, very good growing, you know, in, in good seasons, very good growing area around there for grain. Um, there's also a lot of um, a lot of growing niche food uh, businesses out of there as well. So there's honey, and um, it's actually one of the biggest areas, as I understand it, for things like tomatoes and um, and cucumbers as well. So yeah, very very big um, in the food space, but also there's a lot going on up there around hydrogen. Um, there's a lot of um, mining activity and those sorts of things that go out through the port, as well as any number of other seafood operators, as well as us. So it's it's quite quite a broad economy now, and and a growing tourism sector as well, which we're quite involved in up in that region as well. Good spread. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it's a nice diversified little town these days. Not so little. <laughs> Now, the co-op itself, it's been going since 1950. What was it, a group of fishermen that just got together and said, we've got a market, our catch? Yeah, so as with a lot of um, Genesis stories for cooperatives, it was a group of fishermen who felt like they weren't getting a fair deal from the middlemen, the traders. They weren't getting the information that they needed and fair prices, so they decided to band together and... Um, and form a cooperative and um, so they started out of Geraldton and the basic principle of the cooperative has stayed the same since those days we're basically a service provider to our fishers to uh, take delivery store handle move and market their product to customers around the world and that that um, core business like a good cooperative has stayed um, we've stayed true to that over the last 70 years um, and in that time, we've grown from just being Geraldton centric. So that's servicing fishes in the um, off the Abrolhos Islands, which is about 60 kilometres off the coast of Geraldton, 
and the surrounding areas of Geraldton, we've now grown to the point where we are across the full breadth of the fishery between um, north of Calbarry in the north and um, south of Augusta in the south. When you started those 1950s, because up until uh, COVID came along, you were very export orientated. Even then, was that demand for West Australian seafood, did the... Um, guys that got together initially, were they looking at overseas even then? Uh, yeah, so the main the main market has always been, because we're actually Australia's largest fishery, so um, as much as the local love, locals love our craze, um, there's just not enough locals to eat them. So um, we export at the moment, our quota is about 6.6 .6 million kilos um, a year, and that's caught all year round. Um, and back in those days, they were catching very good catches as well relative to the local population. So um, initially, the main market was the USA back in the 50s. Um, and there was actually a big canning, um, believe it or not, the product used to be canned a lot as well and, and sent. And um, it's been used as rations for army for the army over the years. And um, She's crayfish in the can for uh, the army as rations yeah. are doing okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, even before then, they used to feed it to prisoners, how things have changed. Um, so, yeah, so the US market was big. And then um, over the years, we've seen a number of markets come and go, like, but have have always been there. So the US, um, Japan, and then more recently, China. The processing, is that still continuing in the cannery area? No, so no, we're not we're not canning, but we are certainly processing. So we can we sell a number of different product lines, anything from live. So we export live to countries around the world um, via air, and we also process frozen. So process frozen, whole cooked, whole raw, tails, split product, um, and so forth. Yeah, the tails is quite a lucrative part, and if I understand it, the US, which was that initial overseas market. Initially, they were buying cans, but mm. they became quite a big area for the tails as well, didn't they? Yeah, and they, in fact, they are still our largest market for tails today. So um, there's a big market through the casinos and those sorts of places, um, and right across. So we're distributing our tails right across the US. So still one of our major and most important markets by far. And then from the US, everyone automatically thinks export of Australian seafood, whether it be on the East Coast or the West Coast, into the Asian market. That was the next place that you looked at, wasn't it, Out of the, after the US? Yeah, that's right. So Taiwan and Japan sort of followed, uh, followed the US. So we were exporting large volumes up there, frozen um, every single year. And then from there in the early 2000s to sort of the, um, the last decade or so, China has, has surpassed all of the other markets and, um, and has been importing large volumes from us. The craze were very much the first part of your market and what you were selling. Then what have you done to broaden what seafood's available out of the catchment area? Yeah, so we still very much focused on Western Rock Lobster, so and that keeps certainly keeps us busy. We have in recent times brought on other products through the supply chain where it supports that core business of, of rock lobster. So we're doing things like snow crab, crystal crab, king crab. Um, we are doing small volumes of abalone, 
and scallops and the like. But in terms of volume, it's quite small. And really the way that we view those, uh, those products is we will we'll participate in those markets if it can help reduce the unit cost for our lobster fishers. So we don't do it just to make a profit or to trade. It's really how can we use the assets of, um, of our business, of our members' business, in a way which is going to increase throughput and ultimately reduce their, their overall unit cost. But still very much we, um, we are very focused on the Western Rock Lobster and that will always be the main part of our business because there's just... Um, Every day we receive an average of uh, 11 tonne of, of crayfish every single day of the year. And at certain times of the year, that can go up to 40 or 50 tonnes a day as well. So we have to, we have to remain true to, our, to that core business and to our members, which is the Western Rock Lobster, and not get too distracted in that core task. In today's Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals Meet the Farmers podcast. I'm Michael Kavner, and I'm talking to the CEO of Geraldine Fisherman's Co-op, Matt Rutter. Matt, with the co-op itself, and it started off in the 50s with, I suppose, a group of uh, fishers that didn't really like the, the cut that the middleman was getting. What's the structure of this co-op? We, we see so many different co-ops. Some are very intertwined with the community they put money back into it others run it so that there's a very good deal and operation for its members how does yours operate yeah it's quite um it's quite simple so we're we as a cooperative um as i said earlier we provide the service of receiving um crayfish off the beach from our from our members moving that product through to market and selling it. Um, so every single day we provide a daily price to our fishers on the beach, which is a direct reflection of the true market in the in um, whatever market we're selling to. That's a direct reflection of the price. So our members can decide on any one day how they, whether they want to go fishing at that price and whether they deliver it. And we give the commitment to them that we will, that we will receive that product. Then essentially what we do is we do our best job to move the product through the supply chain as cheaply as possible, keep our costs down, keep the quality of their product at a premium and to sell it at, the, at a maximum price, which ultimately means then that we can deliver a maximum beach price back to them. So any profit that we generate from that transaction um, will ultimately go back to them so we give that back to the back to our fishers in the form of loyalty payments um, at the end of certain periods marketing periods depending on how um, how our trading and our our supply chains has operated so our members um, own shares as as most um, cooperatives do so our members own shares and we give them bonus shares um, for their loyalty and for their custom um, and obviously the members are very involved in and quite closely engaged with the business as well. So we have six members, um, six fishing members on our board and two independents on our board of eight. Um, and we're in daily contact. We have a member services division in daily contact with our members as well and making sure that uh, we're living through to our purpose of delivering value to them in whatever way they see or they might quantify value. Obviously, financial return for lobsters is um, is right at the top, but there's other elements. And as the BCCM has um, 
done some fantastic work in this area over recent years with the MVM, uh, the mutual value model. Um, and we've, we've really embedded that into actually our strategic plan and everything that we do to, so that we can, when we're working with our uh, members and talking with our members, that we look at all of the different ways that we deliver value to them, not only in maximising price, but uh, how we engage in their local community, what we're doing from a commercial perspective, um, and what we're doing at an industry perspective, the mutual, the cooperative mindset, um, all of those sorts of things is, is the way that we really judge our performance um, and hopefully our, our members judge our performance as well. That end of year payment with the shares and the members, is there a limit on how many shares an individual fisher can own and does that influence their voting rights? There is a limit, so there's a there's a share cap, uh, but it doesn't limit their voting rights. So it's one member, one vote. So um, the smallest fisher has an equal say in the co-op as as our largest fishers. So how many members would you be running that have got fishing boats on the water throughout the year? So we have um, somewhere around 170 boats uh, and around about 330 members. So. Um, we we have members who own quota and who provide their, that quota to other members who have boats. Um, so not only active fishers, but also what we call in what we call investors in the um, in the industry as well. So one of the key services that we provide to our fishers is connecting them up with uh, with other quota owners and quota holders so that they can increase the efficiencies and increase the throughput on their individual boats as well. While you're predominantly export, is there involvement from other food producers or related industries that see the success of the co-op and they can either piggyback on it or provide suggestions and some sort of input? Yeah, certainly. I mean, we're, we're connected in with obviously the local seafood industry and um, one of the benefits that we've got, I think, is our scale. So we, as I said earlier, we're, we're moving product through our supply chain and processing product every single day. So there are opportunities for us to make available to, to smaller um, players, whether they be cooperatives or not. And uh in varying forms of support, whether it be marketing, so giving them access to and helping them to sell their product overseas, or helping them um, to put product through our supply chain as well. So we have two major processing facilities down here in Perth. So we've got one at Welsh School, which is proce processes live export. So we're actually a um, an accredited um, consolidator of cargo here, which means that we can load um, direct into airline containers on site rather than having to do it at the airport, which gives us real efficiencies, which a lot of smaller players don't have. So we can we work with the likes of live abalone exporters and live crab exporters, for an example, to, to provide those services. And then down in Fremantle, we have our major fro frozen processing facility as well. So we've got a high capacity inline steam cooker, um, as well as raw frozen processing facilities, which we can make available to, to other seafood exporters or um, smaller 
seafood companies as well. So we're very open in that regard. And again, like I say, it's a direct benefit. Anything that we do there has to be direct benefit to our members. And, and the direct benefit is essentially getting better utilisation out of their assets. You look at dairy co-ops, for example, they also have rural supply operations so the farmers can also go in and get products. Uh, given the size of Western Australia and the area you cover, does the co-op also get itself involved in marine supplies, making sure the boats remain on the water? Yes, yep. So we've got a marine store and we service all of our um, fishers through the marine store up in Geraldton. Um, so all of their essential supplies like ropes and, ropes and floats and those sorts of things. And we also make that available to, to the general public as well. And we've got a boat lifter up in Geraldton. So um, for, you know, for um, hard stand services and those sorts of things. And then we've also got um, a, a very small food service operation, which is a, a um, fresh fish and fish and chip shop in Geraldton as well. Um, so any because you'd like to think that, it's fresh. Yeah, it's as fresh as it comes. So any fishes that um, you know might be long liners as well and catch catch fin fish, um, they can they can sell their product through there, and the locals can come and get the the freshest best fish in town. Geez, you're plugging the product. And actually, at the moment, <laughs> that's probably uh, even allowing for the fact that COVID has impacted like everywhere else. The price of uh, seafood in Geraldton and elsewhere, the overseas market, that's made it more expensive. But being able to get the fish and chips, at least that would make it a bit cheaper, wouldn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's always something for someone. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Rudder, who is the CEO of Geraldton Fisherman's Co-op, is my guest on the Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals Meet the Farmers podcast. I'm Michael Kavanagh. Matt, it's a big area that the uh, seafood co-op covers. Mm. And as I understand it, what something like around about 20 facilities over a thousand kilometres, you really must have your skates on when you're trying to coordinate all of the operations, whether they be on the water, with the processing or even the marine supplies? Yeah, no, it's certainly a, it's a complex task and particularly when you're talking about transporting, essentially our supply chain is live seafood. So we have a, a fleet of bespoke trucks which, which uh, keep our, our crazing water from the moment that we take them off the boat to when we send them to our customers around the world. I guess one of the benefits that we've got is that we have grown in scale. So we're now um, nearly 70% of the market in WA and, and as Australia's largest fishery, that also makes us one of the largest in the world for the exporter of rock lobster, which is pretty unique when you look at primary producers who um, in many markets have enjoyed being price makers rather than price takers because they hold such a large market share. That scale and market share, the benefits of that really flow back down the supply chain to what you were talking about in terms of the, the task of managing the movement of their product from boat through to processing through to the, through to the end consumers. So we do a lot of work around um, investigating how to optimise that down to even understanding how we can minimise the time between the wait time. So we... Um, we pick up from over 50 landing points, whether they be some of those facilities you spoke about or just a beach landing point, and the efficiencies of that truck fleet. So if we can minimise even half an hour wait time for a truck waiting at a beach landing for one of our fishers, 
with the size of our the task that we've got there's huge savings for our for our members there so um i think it's one of the benefits that we can provide to our members is that we've got that scale and we're always investigating how to optimize that supply chain which they just sim- and they get the direct benefit of that so not a middleman any of those savings go back to our members um which they simply wouldn't get with any of the other non-cooperative traders that they could sell to and you look at the history of the co-op, as you said, start off in the 50s, quite simple, the US market, then into Asia. And then as the decades have gone on into live exports, uh, then Taiwan came in, sashimi. How much is, even what you're catching, how it's processed or the markets driven by the demand overseas, and therefore you're watching the taste, because I, I suppose no one ever really thought of sashimi back in the 60s, for example. Yeah, so there's we're definitely influenced by the changing tastes and um, changing demand. And I think what's been interesting over over our history has been um, seeing seeing the next uh, seeing the move from one big market into the next big market. So as we said, tails were a big market in the US. Then we went to frozen into Taiwan. Um, then we went into frozen sashimi grade into Japan. And a lot of that was really born from marketing and promotion that we did and going into the market and um, finding those new markets and over many years building them to the point where eventually they would take over and become uh, the next major market. And then through to China, which was live, so um, did a lot of work in um, developing that supply chain and growing that supply chain to the point where it where uh, China became the major market. So very much, I think it's it's circular. So it's not so much that um, it, it's both proactive as well as um, reactive to seeing where those opportunities are. And now we're going through a similar thing with, um, unfortunately, China is now closed to us. So we're doing a similar thing, going out, developing new markets all over the world, reinstating a lot of those old markets and seeing what we can do to do, to um, meet their current needs um, and and to grow and to see where the next big market might be. Yeah, because you mentioned there about the live exports, one particular market, and that's fallen away. Do you also find, though, that different markets, at the end of the day, they still want the seafood delivered uniformly or do you find that there are different whether it be say northern europe versus uh, southern europe are they expecting different sort of product even though it is um, essentially seafood out of the west australian waters i think they all have an underlying base need for for obviously good quality um the base our product is um is quite unique in the way that its intrinsic value is as as has traditionally been, I should say, has been uh, has been in its whole form. So being able to show a whole crayfish on the plate um, is pretty widely accepted around the world as being desirable. So in that sense, I think that there is that the markets are quite uniform. But I think that there's a growing, and one of the areas that we're looking at is um, really looking at home use so we've traditionally been food service celebratory um, a celebratory product that served in restaurants and hotels and those sorts of things but there's a growing um, sector of the market in certain markets which which is 
more for home use. So what we've got to do is work out how we can make it, make the product more user-friendly for, um, you know, for mums and dads to cook at home. We're still exploring that, but we think that there's opportunities there. Again, I think that it, it will have a long tail on it in terms of how long that will grow to, to become, um, you know, a significant market for us, but it's certainly one that we have to be exploring. The co-op itself, and there's such things as the marine supplies. Have you also started to branch out? Some co-ops provide, for example, agronomists, obviously not on, not, not on the water, but does the co-op look at that sort of thing and possibly advising on finance for its members? Not finance per se, um, but we do look at other opportunities. So we're exploring opportunities around um, where, again, the scale of the co-op could provide some benefits around things like hull insurance, fuel. And one of the, the other things that I didn't mention earlier was we we sell bait. So we're exploring what other, um, for example, non, non-traditional bait options there might be for our members. So we certainly do that, but we... We haven't extended into the advisory side of things um, as yet, but we also, um, not not directly related to your question, but we also do get involved in the underlying, in very actively involved in discussions around things like sustainability, which is really about underpinning the security and the longevity of of our members' businesses um, and getting involved in, you know, quota setting discussions um, and looking at how we assess sustainability and how we assess value, not only for our members, but for the, the, the whole community of the shared resource. On that question of sustainability, we've seen both on the West Coast and the East Coast over the last few years, incredible changes on such things as quotas, licences, um, being able to fish close to shore, offshore, the different categories. Mm. How much has that affected such a big fishery such as yours and the members, did you did you see that some members left the industry or they were re-energised by the changes? Well, I don't think anyone's left the industry over here for sustainability reasons, um, mainly because we are extremely sustainable. So we, we have stock on the ground that many old-timers say is, you know, back to virgin levels. Um, The catch rates are extremely high. We're very fortunate compared to a lot of other fisheries around um, the country and around the world. And um, that's really come from um, good fisheries management practices. So I think that that that's the first thing is that we are, you know, extremely sustainable. So we haven't seen, as I said, we haven't seen um, any fishers dropping out due to sustainability, but there's certainly a lot of discussions going on in the industry at the moment around things like wind farms, um, marine parks and those sorts of things. So um, as an industry, obviously, we have to support the development within our fishery of those sorts of things and um, and work with the government which we're doing. Um, The other things that we're doing around sustainability relate to really understanding the value of sustainability and um, the interplay between having a sustainable resource and maximising the value of that resource. So there's a lot of misconceptions, I guess, that fishers will naturally be incentivised to catch the maximum volume out of the ocean because that's going to maximise their returns. But 
we're doing a lot of work at the, at the moment and GFC's um, very actively involved in this around what we call maximum economic yield. So, and that's really looking at, well, you can go out and you can catch another 2 million kilos, but what's the price going to do? What are your catch rates going to do? And what is the net return in your, in your um, back pocket? So this year we've actually just developed, uh, with industry developed a maximum economic yield model which looks at that and it's very interesting when you see the curve and that, that economic yield curve that really confirms what we've always known is that it's in our interest to keep more crayfish in the ocean because that will keep your costs low, you can catch more um, and it'll put less pressure on the market, which means that you can, you can um, drive the higher prices and, and maintain that premium price point. So it's re really interesting when you start to look at sustainability from those points of view and then broadening that out to say, well, if you're under-exploiting, or not under-exploiting, but you're exploiting the resource within that sort of model, then you, you get the flow on benefits of less marine interactions, less fuel burn, um, and so forth, which then plays into the, into the broader sustainability around climate and, um, and nature and those sorts of things. So this is an area that we're really interested in and which we're really um, working with, with the broader industry around because it gets right to the core of who we are as a cooperative, which is underpinning the, the business, you know, our, the, the businesses of our members and, and really living that, you know, that I think as well, linking in and, and showing how those sorts of things to show, well, if our members can be profitable and maximise profitability, you can also then maximise the benefit to the community. If the community can go out there and get a, a, a recreational licence and easily catch their eight crows every day, you know, before six o'clock in the morning before going to work. So it's a it's a really interesting interplay and sustainability is something that we as a as a cooperative are, are very very focused on. Be a nice way to start the morning off. Eight crows, put them up there for breakfast and the head, head off on a yeah. coat and tie for the um the day. <laughs> Even um, I can do it. <laughs> I'm Michael Kavner, and this is Meet the Farmers podcast for Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals. And my guest in this podcast is the CEO of Geraldine Fisherman's Co-op, Matt Rudder. Matt, the co-ops themselves, since COVID and probably a little bit before, they had fallen by the wayside, but co-ops seem to be enjoying a resurgence and an acceptance of being able to drive, as you said, being able to work out what's good for the community and also for the members. What do you put that down to? I think I put it down to the simple fact that we're principles-based businesses. So um, through our various, we've been through various crises over the last two and a half years. And the guiding principles of who we are as a cooperative, so the seven principles genuinely have helped us um, to determine the best way to go. I think there's a lot of, um, and through COVID and the pandemic and all the, the turmoil in the world at the moment, the, there's um, a greater community expectation around business. And it's really, I think that people are starting to wake up to the fact that co-ops have been have have really been principle-based businesses the whole way through, have been adjusting the way that they operate to community expectations for hundreds of years. 
um, what what is now called you know ESG is really enshrined in in our principles. And the thing for me, having worked you know nearly a quarter of a century in in cooperatives, is that as an employee of a co-op, it's being able to work for the people and to know the people that you're working for and to see the direct impact on them, their families and the communities and the broader industry as well. Um, you know, a, a long, proud industry such as ours. It's not all about exploitation. It's not all about short-term profit. It genuinely is about how do we keep these people in businesses? How do we keep our local communities operating through the pandemic? How do we minimise um, not only looking at our own balance sheet and making sure that as a co-op we survive, but how do we um, look at the balance sheets of our members and what can we do to shape the markets that they're, that they're working into, um, you know, to protect their balance sheet and to protect them? So I think it's something that um, I'm extremely passionate about, obviously. Um, but I think it's it's nice to see that resurgence in recognition for for who cooperatives are and what they stand for. And I think I think there's just so much opportunity for co-ops around the country and around the world, um, and to apply those cooperative principles and to really think what is the best business model these days. How do you protect that success in the sense that we've seen some very well-run co-ops in Australia, they get a good share price amongst their members, and then there's the push to either demutualise or mutualise and and go, and we've seen very successful co-ops, unfortunately, fall by the wayside when it became much more privately owned and run. How does the Geraldton Fisherman's Co-op protect against that sort of thing? I actually think the MVM model is the perfect way to protect against it. Well, the principles to start with, but I think in terms of the members themselves, it speaks to the value. So our um, our purpose is to maximise value for members short, medium and long term, but there has been always this discussion, well, what is value? Is it price? Is it sustainability? What is value? And I think that the work that the BCCM's done and the other co-ops um, with BCCM to really refine that model helps us to define value, which then importantly we need to be communicating to our members because I think the underlying need, that common need amongst our members is still there, but there is a temptation and a risk to forget that depending on um, who's who's the loudest on the day and, and what the focus is. And I think for me, again, that the MBM model has been a really important guiding principle when we're talking with our members to talk about not only what we're doing to maximise price and minimise costs so to maximise their beach price, but what are we also doing um, in the communities that they're living in? What, all, what are we doing in the industry and with the, with the other stakeholders, with the cooperative mindset? Um, and what does that mean for them and for their businesses? And and I think as long as we're communicating it in that way, it opens the eyes up to just the dollars and cents, which is where I think a lot of the risk comes from in terms of these demutualisation type discussions. Um, and it's something as a sector that I think we need to work at and just continue to champion and not just look at the dollars and cents. Obviously, that's, that's the core, but um, there's so much more that cooperatives can do. On that point of being able to do things, such a large cooperative like 
yourselves, and you're obviously dealing with overseas clients all the time, is there a need for possibly even closer cooperation amongst the co-ops, not just in Australia, but you're looking at the way co-ops operate overseas? And is there the point where you can actually draw on the expertise of those different co-ops and combine the efforts? Yeah, I I think without a doubt, I think that cooperation amongst cooperatives principle is something that we that we're really interested in. We've explored it and have helped other co-ops in Australia to to get up and to get running. And and I think that there's no end to the amount of collaboration and cooperation between you know whether it be amongst other seafood co-ops around Australia or um, any other sort of co-ops or mutuals. I think that as a community, we need to be working and looking for those opportunities because it's interesting that um, when you get a group of cooperative and mutual CEOs and and, um, champions together, the opportunities that come together that come out of those sorts of discussions and as much as, and this is something I think again that as an industry we're doing a lot better with bccm's um, leadership is how do we how do we explore those opportunities and and what sort of models can we can we learn from overseas and and what sort of new models can we come up with as well fishing like a lot of primary industry sector have trouble with getting young people involved and i know in the case of uh, the geraldine's Fisherman's Co-op, it goes back in some cases four generations. Mm. Are you still at the same time finding it difficult to regenerate and getting younger people involved? Yeah, there is there is that challenge within certainly within the membership, um, but to a degree, I think where it is, it's quite a nice industry in that that succession does seem to be passing on to the next generations. Obviously, there is a, an element of consolidation when the next generation doesn't want um, to take on the fishing operations, but um, the family will stay involved either as investors um, or or as fishers. So the challenge for us, I think, is how do we stay engaged with them and the next generation as well, um, whether they're actively fishing or or investors, um, but it is—it's certainly a challenge, and I think it's no different to to farming, um, where gradually you do see the operators getting bigger and bigger. But it doesn't seem to be happening at um, at a breakneck speed. For us, it's about what what can we do to help maintain and to keep bringing in you know those smaller players because having that diversity of small and big players is really what creates a rich community and creates um, you know a rich. The rich heritage that we've that we've enjoyed for seventy years. Well, we're not that far out from the festive season, which normally would be a terrific time for operations such as yourself, particularly with the craze, and they are seen as that sort of thing, and they look fantastic on a table where you're celebrating something. Given all that's gone on the last couple of years, how much do you think that it will pick up, and will, there will be that demand for the celebration season or are you just still trying to just consolidate at the moment i think there's there's a lot of opportunity for and we have seen demand pick up i mean one of the the big windfalls if you like of of all our misfortunes um over the last couple of years is prices drop quite significantly so it's at a price point now that works for the locals 
we are selling a lot more and it tends to only be over Christmas and um, and Easter that um, that we see the big consumption in in the local market. Um, but that said, there's a large amount of product coming out of, the, as I was talking about earlier, the recreational fishes. So there's a huge amount of product coming out of the ocean from people who have their own boats and sharing crayfish and having it over over Christmas. So that's that's certainly a benefit. I guess one of the challenges is that the the local the local consumers are more more price sensitive, whereas a lot of other countries probably value the product higher. Um, whether that's because they might have a, a cultural connection to um, the crayfish because it's auspicious and lucky and has traditionally been consumed in more festivals than what we do, um, or whether you know there's just changing demographics and wealth profiles in those in, in those countries. So that's one of the challenges we've got. And as we you know the prices have come down over the last two years because we've been trying to promote a premium product into a food service market globally where um, very few people have been going out and eating and celebrating. Um, that will obviously turn. So the challenge for us now is, well, how do we maintain our local market if the prices do go up and what sorts of things can we be can we be doing to make sure that there's still that local availability for anyone here in Australia who wants to enjoy the product? Yeah, you talked to other seafood co-ops and one of the things that seems to grate on them, and I, I get annoyed myself, you walk into a restaurant, first of all, you ask for local court and often you just don't get it. And the other thing is, oh, they either want barramundi or salmon. How do you convince, and it's not just the public, you seem to have, have to convince the chefs as well that there's this great product that's wider in these huge fisheries off the different parts of the Australian coast. Yeah, it's a it is a challenge, and you know we're competing against cheaper, lower quality product um, that's being imported, and you see that in in a number of other proteins and and primary um, foods as well. But yeah, it's certainly a challenge, and part of the challenge there, I think, is to to get the restaurants to be branding the product so they can't just they they can't just substitute whatever's the cheapest input on the day. And that I think has to be consumer driven. And so, and I think, you know, there's things like um, understanding the carbon footprint of, of what you're eating and those sorts of things, I think become pretty important. And I think it'll change over time. So the challenge for us is how do we stay ahead of that and how do we sort of help to drive that? Um, but I think ultimately it needs to be, you know, for us, we'd love to see Brolos Western Rock Lobster on the menu and um, for consumers to know that it's literally come straight out of the oceans next door um, rather than being imported or, you know, substituted for something else. Yeah, I know myself if I walk into a fresh seafood shop and I just make it really clear that I want locally caught, mm. the people behind the counter, their eyes actually light up. You can almost sense yeah. that there's a bit of excitement and we're going to give this person and maybe different and I may not have heard of that fish. And again, it seems to come back to the education. Then I say, well, how would you prepare it? Yeah. Is that also the fact with possibly the local knowledge of what even comes out of those WA waters? Yeah, certainly for crayfish. I think everyone gets, you know, it's it's actually an extremely easy product to, to make at home once you know how to make it. But I think that it, it has um, made a few home cooks nervous. Um, I think most of the food service people are all pretty comfortable with it, but... Um, 
yeah, we're, we're doing a lot of work, you know, just putting out how-to guides and those sorts of things nowadays to, to remove some of the anxiety that might come with, you know, what to do with this product when you get it home. Well, Matt, on that note, what's the favourite way that you like your shellfish that comes out of those WA waters? Actually, I my preferred, my latest preferred way of having them is simply um, either steamed or boiled or barbecued um, with a dash of truffle oil. Goodness and that me. way you, you just get, you get all the flavour of the lobster with a little hint of truffle. Um, but failing that, if, if you can't access the truffle, then garlic butter, you can't go past a, a generous serve of garlic butter. <laughs> I must say truffles. So what, you actually pour the truffle oil as it's cooking or you serve it like you pour it after it's on the plate? When it's on the plate, yep. So very, very simple. And I think I'm a big, I'm a big fan of simple with crayfish because, you, you know, you want to be able to taste the to taste the meat. So anything that you put on it should should complement, but not right overpower. <laughs> well, Matt, you've certainly got me salivating. On that note, I'll leave you because I'm thinking the idea of the truffle oil on the um, catch sounds fantastic. Yeah, no, I, I definitely recommend it. Matt, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Michael. For a person heavily involved in the seafood industry. I was interested to hear Matt's ideas on cooking some of the wonderful seafood that's processed by the Geraldton Fisherman's Cooperative. Melina, I'm a fan of simple preparation of seafood. What about yourself? I don't get my hands on rock lobster very often, unfortunately, but I absolutely love seafood and it's good for you. And we're talking about a sustainable industry, so what's not to like? I hope that's whetted your appetite for more from our regular podcast, Meet the Co-op Farmers. And look forward to seeing you next time. I hope you enjoyed this latest episode of Meet the Co-op Farmers. If you'd like to know anything about setting up or running a successful agricultural cooperative, you can find out everything you need to know at the Co-op Farming website. That's www.coopfarming.coop. That's right, C-O-O-P for cooperative. Please share this with your mates. If you enjoyed this story, we really do want to get the great stories of farming cooperation out there. And remember, in a troubled world, with all of the challenges but also the opportunities we have, we really are better together. I'm Melina Morrison and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Meet the Co-op Farmers.